you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the podcast where we review the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. I'm Mike Dunlavy, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. This episode we'll be discussing musical selections from Germany and Austria, as well as photos relating to our planet's fauna from the Golden Record Photo Archive. Let's begin. today by talking about track 17. Track 17 is the Well-Tempered Clavier, book two, Prelude and Fugue in C, number one, composed by Johann Sebastian Bach, BWV 870. It runs four minutes and 48 seconds and is performed here by Canadian pianist Glenn Gould. We've now reached the third of three Bach pieces on the Golden Record. I think this is a very nice breath of fresh air following Stravinsky was the previous track, and I think this is just a, like, ah, I can breathe again. I, my ears aren't bleeding. <laughs> so this, this is a nice follow-up. This, yeah, I think this is what, exactly what you need to hear after you listen to a Stravinsky piece. If you were making this mixtape. This playlist, I, you, you, I wouldn't th- put Stravinsky on it, but <laughs> no, no. But if, if you're doing the ordering, yeah, I would definitely. This is follow. a good, this is a good order. Okay, I, I, would, I think so. You wouldn't necessarily put all three Bach pieces together. I think it's splitting up is good. It's just like, oh, you get a little taste here, a little taste here. It's great for us. We don't have to have a whole episode just talking about Bach. Sure, we could though. That would also be great. Bach fan here. <laughs> so this is from the second book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. It was written in 1742. 20 years after the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier, and it was written while Bach was living in Leipzig. So the question is, the question I have is, well-tempered. Tempered is referring to a type of tuning of an instrument, which I can't claim to fully understand, and I'm hoping someone else here might be able to uh, walk us through it. Let me try and shed some light on this matter. So... When you pluck a string, it has a wavelength, and the wavelength tells you what the pitch is for that note. The wavelength and the pitch are intimately connected. And if you have or double the wavelength, like if you cut the wavelength in half or if you double it, then you get the same note an octave up or down. If you have it, you get the octave up, and if you double it, you get the octave down. And you can also, say, divide that piece of string into thirds so that instead of having one wavelength, you have three wavelengths in it, and then you would get a fifth. And uh, you can play this geometric game and divide an octave into 12 notes and get the classical, not classical, the the ancient Pythagorean scale. Actually, it's post-Pythagorean. We don't have to get into the minutiae here. The point is that there is a geometric definition of what the notes are, but that geometric definition doesn't allow you to change key and keep your tuning. The fifth above, well, fifths are probably not a good example, but a seventh above one note in one tuning geometrically is not 
going to be the same exact pitch as that note in a different tuning. So instead, you cheat. You don't go geometrically. You smooth out those differences, and then you get good, well-tempering so that a D is always a D no matter what octave you're in and no matter what note you started from. It's always going to sound like a D. So it's, it's easier to compose a piece in different keys if you do this tempering of the tuning. So in the days before tempered tuning, if they were changing key, they would have to retune the entire instrument. And now a uh, piano, for example, is an instrument that you just, uh, you can play in any key. You just have to decide which sharps and flats uh, you're going to play, and it all sounds good. This may be why Bach once famously described a piano as ridiculously simple. You just had to press the right note at the rest, the right time, and it practically played itself. <laughs> well, so uh, the question I have, so the well-tempered clavier, there's two books of it. Each one contains 24 preludes and fugues in every major minor key. Was he doing this to show off this tuning scale, or was he doing this to give people with instruments something to play to check their tuning like or was he was this merely an exercise for him to compose in different keys i think the transcription on the inside cover said something along the lines of it was written for uh students to learn music okay something like that um so i think it was for their exercise but not just technical finger work sort of thing more like how the melodies go together or something like that yeah, they're, the fugues are all exquisite exercises in fuguing. I mean, he's. he's <laughs> we we discussed this the last time because we had a Bach fugue, and it was uh, he is a master of the fugue, right? Okay. Well, that that to me uh, explains why he would do this exercise twice. Right. Like why twenty years after doing the first book of the Well Tempered Clavier, why he felt a second book would be interesting. If it was just for the purpose of demonstration, the second book wouldn't really serve any purpose unless it's better than the first book. It's certainly harder to play in my experience, the which two, is limited. But the second one is harder to play than the first. The, fir- the okay, the Prelude in C in the first book and the Prelude in C in the second book. Definitely, the first book is easier. I I, I challenge anybody to disagree with me on that one. Hear that, listeners? Feel free to challenge Roby. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Across Come on, Hannah. Well, actually, Bach. There's a there's a legend that Bach challenged someone to a harp to a harpsichord. Harp, oh my God. A harpsichord. <laughs> That's amazing. A harpsichord duel um, in his lifetime. Which is called a harpsichord. <laughs> Apparently. That's really neat. Yeah, he challenged Louis Marchand to a harpsichord. Oh my a God. It's a harpsichord, Hannah. It's fun. <laughs> to a harpsichord in 1717, but Louis Marchand fled on the day of the duel. Understand. Wait, wait, wait. Is this a duel where the loser dies? Like why? <laughs> like, is a harpsichord that hardcore? Maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's like the rite of spring. Maybe you have to, to play the organ yourself to <laughs> death, <laughs> to fugue yourself to death in four and a half minutes. I'm going to fugue it. <laughs> However, recent scrutiny of this story showed that there was no conclusive proof that this actually occurred. So it might not be true, but I like to think it is. Do we know who Louis Marchand was? He like, was a fellow harpsichord wizard, is what I have written in my notes. <laughs> so I think he was pretty so, good. Wait, so this is a and he had a cool hat. This is a wizard's harpsichord? No, no, wizard means he's very good at... <laughs> 
playing the harpsichord. A wizard's duel on harpsichord. <laughs> Again, trademark mixtape. <laughs> so, as we've said in previous episodes, we're all good Canadians here, and this piece is performed by the great Canadian pianist Glenn Gould. The first time we spoke about Bach, the very first thing you said possibly on this whole podcast is, I love Bach. It's true. I do. I really like Bach. And how do you feel about Glenn Gould? I, I'm not a fan. I know that makes me a terrible Canadian, but uh, I was I was raised to um, hear the, the things that I was raised to accept about Glenn Gould didn't make me think that he was the greatest pianist. For example, ooh, he's such a great musician that he brings his piano with him wherever he goes. In my experience, great musicians get beautiful music out of the instruments that are there. And I can't believe that was looked upon favorably by the people running the concert halls. Well, I mean, I do know that, they, like, I, because I watched that amazing documentary about Steinway pianos, I do know that people about to play Carnegie Hall go to the Steinway showroom in New York and pick which piano they're going to have delivered to Carnegie for their performance, and that's pretty cool. Well, I feel, um, yeah, and I feel that's a service that Carnegie Hall offers, right? I, it's not that... It does feel kind of more like that, yeah. yeah. The the only good thing about him is that he enabled one of those hilarious Simpson jokes about uh, the the music being, if not as good as not, if not Gould, at least as good as Gould. Oh, like as good as Gould. going to start talking about the next section of photos. These are photos related to the animals of the earth. And we're going to start with picture 51. Picture 51 is titled Flying Insect, copyright 1975 by Stephen Dalton from the book Born on the Wind. And it shows a small insect with length, scale, and mass indicated. Uh, And the insect appears to be some kind of wasp. And it's flying towards some flowers. It's a lovely photo. It catches the insect in flight with very little blur. It almost looks like a still photo. And the legs are all sprawled out everywhere. Yep. And this is, in fact, a yellow Ophian ichneumon wasp. Oh. Fun fact about the yellow Ophian ichneumon wasp. Thank you. It lays its eggs in other insects, oh. where its larva then eats the host oh. until it is strong enough to eat its way out of the body and fly away. Once upon a time, when we were discussing how they chose these photos, they had a rule about there being no bummers. <laughs> they didn't actually take, show a picture of the baby eating its way out of its host. That's fair. Yeah, but parasitic wasps are this super is a, creepy. This is absolutely a parasitic wasp that is apparently two centimeters long and weighs about a gram. I, I quite like the way that the picture caught the transparency of the wings. I think that's a nice oh, yeah. feature of insects, some absolutely. insects. And Moving on to picture 52. Picture 52 is titled Diagram of Vertebrate Evolution by our old friend John Lomberg. This is a diagram adapted from a book called Life, Cells, Organisms, Populations by E.O. Wilson from Sinara Associates. And it shows a series of vertebrate animals, basically drawings of going from sharks to humans. And they make a note that besides the shark and the fish with feet, all of these animals show up in other photos, most notably the bird and the deer, which are taken from pictures 58 and 62, which we will, one of which we will get to today. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, so that eagle is taken from picture 58, and the deer is taken from picture 62. Like most English speakers, I read from left to right and top 
down, and I know that's not the only possible way to read things, but the shark is at the bottom of the picture. So if I were trying to make a timeline here, uh, I'd start at the humans and go down to the shark. So I have in my notes, how in the hell does this show evolution? (laughs) This could just be two humans and their giant... Menagerie. Because that frog is not to scale. That None fish of is not these to, scale. Are to scale. There's no progression. There's nothing to say. Like, why? Where is the ape? Where is the chimpanzee? Why go from like where does the eagle come into the line from shark to human? All right. So it goes: shark, fish, fish with legs, frog, alligator, alligator bird, antelope, humans. Yeah, the classic evolutionary path. <laughs> <laughs> In the previous, uh, one of the previous images, we had the continental drift. We were mm-hmm. working from top down in that, going from oldest yeah. to yeah. middle to future. Yeah. So yeah. I think if we're following that same pattern, you should also have this going from top to bottom. And why include the fish with feet, which isn't a thing I believe that exists anymore, <laughs> when everything else does? That's a good point. Why not just use the almost now classic image of the... The hominids slowly, slowly standing upright. Um, yeah, maybe e. with Wilson. a time scale on it. Maybe E.O. Wilson didn't have that in his book. Can we also talk about how this looks like it was drawn by a six-year-old? Well, <laughs> we got bigger fish to fry here, Hannah. Bigger, <laughs> bigger fish with feet to fry. Um, the human figures at the top. Ah. Now these are the figures that are basically the same as what went up on the pioneer plaque, controversially. Uh, so right at the top of this image are is a human. Adult male and female, both unclothed. Quoted from Murmurs of Earth, this is taken from Sagan and Drake's Pioneer 10 and 11 plaques, drawn by Linda Sagan. So it's their plaque, but her drawing. Wait, what? Okay. So they, they list the Pioneer plaques as being as belonging to Sagan and Drake. But not Linda, even though her drawing. It's her drawing, yep. Okay. And there was some controversy beyond the nudity that... The feminists complained about on the pioneer plaque, the man was standing with his hand up and the woman was standing with her hands down. And there was uh, apparently, according to them, controversy that this showed uh, women as passive. Uh, so in this photo, they reversed it. The woman is standing with her hand up and the man was standing with his hands at his side. And the last comment in the Murmurs of Earth caption is pace feminists, which is Latin, I believe, for peace feminists. And this is just about the most condescending nonsense. Uh, it's not the most condescending nonsense I've ever seen, but it's pretty much up there. Like he actually wrote that in the book. That's in the book. That is in the caption for this photo. That's so petty. <laughs> yeah. Why not just phrase it as, we heard the concerns and we're, we're trying to equal things, even things out. And more to the point... Once you had decided that it was okay to send nude pictures of people into space and you weren't going to listen to the complaints about the people from last time who said don't send nude pictures into space, why didn't you send nude pictures when we were actually talking about reproduction when the nude bits are like important as opposed to here when we've got a bunch of really quite crudely drawn fish with feet and then seriously well-drawn nude people? Like, what? <laughs> with this what's i just maybe this is in order of their interest (laughs) (laughs) well i sincerely hope so yes yeah i would be very worried (laughs) if there was like a lovingly detailed (laughs) fish with feet (laughs) lying back (laughs) seductively yeah that would be all wrong (laughs) 
<laughs> Did we point out that there's no scale already? Uh, well, the, the, what would be the point of having the scale when these animals aren't to scale? No, but they could give a scale for each one if they're not to scale. Oh, that's true. We got problems with this one. We don't like the, we don't like this photo. Sorry. And, we're and not sorry. Not sorry. Not sorry. We're, not, we're not sorry. Not sorry. And we don't like the caption in the book either. Yes. <laughs> Snarky old dudes. Picture 53 is titled Seashell from Abrams Incorporated, taken by Herman Lanzoff. And this is a Zansidae shell. And it's taken from a book called The Shell, 500 Million Years of Design. Uh, but it's not actually a picture of a seashell. It's a picture of a seashell that has been sawn in half. Yes, it, it, has, had, it has had a section very neatly sawed out. So you can see the inner structure. Which is beautiful. It is a beautiful picture, but it's not really of a seashell. It's not of a complete seashell. Nobody has ever found that on a beach. That's true. <laughs> That's true. And they make note in Murmurs of Earth that as a, as a natural shape, as a shape that occurs naturally, it has a sort of beautiful shape. That this, if the OSPs, the outer space people, had any aesthetic taste, that this might be appealing. If they possessed an aesthetic taste, not if they had any. <laughs> if they possessed aesthetics, that they would find this an interesting picture. <laughs> So I think that a lot of research has gone into showing that our tastes are the product of our environment and presumably the environment on another planet is different. And so it would be perfectly possible to develop a taste that didn't think that, you know, the golden mean was beautiful. Maybe they think contour drawings of fish with legs are beautiful. Um, there's also a note that both Drake and Sagan thought this piece, this picture might be confusing because it's not clear that it's an organic object. Now, this raises a point that I'm going to get very exercised about because I've said on previous episodes that it's it would be unfair of us to consider the order of the photos in terms of how we interpret them. Like the order might be seen as arbitrary. But they say explicitly here that the order of the photos will give this context. Mm-hmm. So all, everything I've said in the previous eight episodes about how it would be unfair to judge this by the order, out the window. Open Aww. season! Open season. <laughs> <laughs> Those weren't actual gunshots, just in case anyone's worried. <laughs> Um, but I do think it's a very nice picture. It's, it is a very pretty picture. I agree. I just wonder what dictates what gets a length or mass scale and what doesn't, because this has no scale, so we have no idea how large or small this is. Why not just arbit- why, why didn't they just decide that they were going to put length scales in on everything? Yeah, I, why does the, the wasp get scale, but this one doesn't? I just think it's inconsistent, and it's easy to stick a length scale on if... Why That's we what we're a, doing. Why didn't we put a length scale of the wasp at, you know, 10 feet to really scare off? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to picture 54, titled Dolphins, taken by Thomas Nebbia of the National Geographic Society. It shows two and a half dolphins flying through the air. Yeah. Presumably singing so long and thanks for all the fish. It, it looks very Adamsine. But I would like to point out that the vast majority of dolphin lifespan is spent in water, not the air. Yes. That, that 
that being several feet above the surface of the water is ten a, feet easily is an unusual state for dolphins. I mean, they do it often enough and on their own, but but don't worry, Roby, because as they say in the caption in Rooms of Earth, the dripping water gives strong clues they are an aquatic species. Pache, pache, ichthyologists. <laughs> These are mammals. What are ocean? What's the, what is the name for people who study ocean-going mammals? There must be one. Cetologists. Um, Oh, that's whales, definitely. I don't know if that applies to dolphins. Ocean mammalologist? Oh, there you go. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Yes, so my one note really from this is why not just show them swimming? There's plenty of pictures of dolphins swimming at the surface. Yeah, you could have a really cool picture with some out of the water if you wanted to show that they had this incredible ability to jump out. Yeah, a dolphin out of water will die. Is it obvious here? Could we interpret this as being an underwater photo? I know we see an island in the background. Not with the droplets of water. You could interpret it like the dolphins are peeing as they're soaring through the sky. It does look like the dolphins are peeing as they fly. It could be a bubble trail. I agree. It looks more like they're peeing. And there is an island in the background. Well, so, so this question feeds into the discussion we're, we're going to have in the next photo, which is picture 55, titled School of Fish by David Dubillet of the National Geographic Society, taken in Naama Bay, which is on the Red Sea, showing a school of fish and a scuba diver checking them out. They were happy to include a picture with a diver, because the diver would be, make it clear that they were underwater. Uh, <laughs> only if they know what a diver is. Yes, well, well, Drake, Sagan, and, and Lomberg were all apparently very active scuba divers. So from their own particular perspective, this is the best way to show a picture is underwater by having a <laughs> scuba diver in the photo. Is this one of those three guys in the photo? I don't believe so. This is a national ge- photo from National Geographic. Okay. Like a lot of these photos are net from National Geographic. I assume that some of this research was basically going to the Cornell Library and pulling the yellow magazines out of the stacks. This photo was also sent in color which I think is a good choice. For showing that it's underwater and also just giving some clarity because it's got quite a lot of detail in it. Yeah, because those are not obviously fish. No way. There's there's no way the resolution of this photo was good enough to determine those are fish. Nor is it incredibly obvious that the dark figure with the flipper feet isn't a fish with feet, for crying out loud. Because <laughs> we've already established in the order of the photos, which is very important for context, <laughs> that fish can have feet. Yes. <laughs> If they were worried about the man on the horse being confused for a centaur, this is obviously an Atlantean Aquaman. Well, it's a fish with feet. Moving on, picture 56 is titled Tree Frog, was taken by David Wickstrom uh, near his house in Ithaca. Uh, It shows a tiny tree frog sitting on a person's uh, very dirty index finger. It's a free tree frog, not a tree toad. The photo is titled Tree Frog. The NASA website titles it as Tree Toad. Ah. So. Wait, so there's a disagreement between the NASA website and Murmurs oh, of Earth? Oh, like almost every single photo title that you've read is not what the NASA website has given me. Okay, well, that's too big of a thing to get into right now. <laughs> We're going to talk about this barely in focus picture of a tree frog or toad. I like it. I think this is a very nice picture. Yep. I think it's very cute. Very cute, cute little frog and a dirty hand. <laughs> Yeah, your complaint about the focus is that it's it comes from such a beautiful piece of portrait photography that the frog's eyes and face are in uh, yeah. the plane of focus and nothing else is. I agree, it's not clear. Again, you might wonder which bits were tree frog and which bits were hand if you were 
not familiar with the form of frog. And on the previous page, there was a picture of a frog, and the, they were using the uh, traced outlines of some of these animals for the the tracing of that, and they didn't choose it for this frog. And this oh, frog. oh yeah, that's a mess. Moving on to picture fifty-seven. Oh no, which is titled "Crocodile," and there is no photo credit that could I could find. For Nobody this photo. was willing to own up to this one. It shows a ventral view of a crocodile, and a person looks who looks to be measuring its tail. So the crocodile is lying on his back with his belly up, and we're looking down on him. And he kind of looks like he's dead. There's no way this is a living crocodile. Oh, it's definitely dead? Okay. No, well, well, it could be anesthetized. In Murmurs of Earth, they make a point of saying that the interesting part of this photo is the person, not more so oh, than, the, than the crocodile, because this shows, and they hope that others will be impressed <laughs> by what we know and what we're interested in, that we are scientists who take an interest in our nature. Little did they know that 40 years later, the idea that what a scientist does is going around bothering <laughs> crocodili- crocodilians and uh, with measuring tape is just absurd. The OSBs are going to be like, oh, they measure crocodile tails? Hot damn, i got to meet these folks. They got Chuck Berry and crocodile <laughs> tail measurements? Let's go check them out. So impressive. Moving on to picture 58. Titled Eagle by Peter Beard from the book Donana, Spain's Wildlife Wilderness, copyright 1974, shows a eagle in flight. There's something hanging out of the eagle's beak. Do we know anything about that? Uh, no. We just think it's part of the eagle's beak because we don't know any better because we're outer space people. Uh, we can certainly interpret that. I personally don't think that's the case. <laughs> and what I just noticed just this second, and Hannah, you'll be very pleased about this, there is a length scale. Oh, I, I, I did see that, but it's very hard to make out because it's... It is very hard to make out. It's uh, not contrasted very well. Yeah, it is 50 centimeters, which I would have thought very small for an eagle. But that's not the, that's just like the tail to... The head. It doesn't go all the way to the end of his head, though. The line's like in the middle of his body. So I don't know if they're just not measuring the whole body or just they put the line in the wrong spot. I'll say again, Murmurs of Earth, available for purchase as an e-book from all fine online booksellers. Because they stopped printing it and maybe now I know why. Moving on to picture 59, titled Waterhole. Again, this is our second photo where I couldn't find a credit. And it shows various zebras and wildebeest and other things all taking a drink from a body of water. Now, let's let's talk about some real nerdy stuff about why they were happy with this photo. So again, this is titled Waterhole. It shows animals gathered around the waterhole. And why do astronomers like this? Well, it turns out in the microwave spectrum, there's an emission line for hydrogen very close to an emission line for an OH molecule. So H and OH, which all together make water. In the space between these two emission lines is a place astronomers dubbed the water hole. And the idea is that if water is a constant of life, that this is a place where OSPs would also be looking. And therefore, this is an ideal place to look for interstellar transmissions. Wait a second. They send a picture of an actual watering hole because of the joke about... Let me, let, me, let me get to the next line of my notes. Okay. This picture is basically a pun for people who will never see it or get it. What the heck? Well, it's pleasing for them. So that kind of brings up a fundamental point, which maybe we've been learning, which is that they did a lot of thinking for them. Absolutely. This, 100%. This was, this was not Earth's mixtape. This was... 
sagging a bunch of dudes putting together something that pleased them, that tickled their fancy, and they were like, oh, I've got privilege. I'm going to send it into space. Wee! <laughs> well, and it's, and it's really about, like, going back to that photo of the scuba diver and the person measuring the alligator, it's all about having the OSPs think we're clever. Yeah, but not, not actually clever. Like, having the OSPs think that we are Sagan's thought of what clever is. Like, yes. it's... No, no, it's, that's, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, so it's not that they... Yeah, exactly. Not that we as a species are clever, that those people who put the record together are clever. And is, the, is the impression I get. Where the only possible way that you can define clever, the only acceptable definition of clever, is the, the, the very narrow one that the dudes putting it together came up with. Moving on, we're going to now discuss track 18. Track 18 is... The Fifth Symphony First Movement, composed by Ludwig van Beethoven, was written between 1804 and 1808. It runs 7 minutes and 20 seconds, performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra, Otto Klemperer Conductor. And this is the first of two pieces of Beethoven on the record. Yay, I love this piece. (laughs) This is a very famous piece of music. It's a lovely piece of music. I'll say it was first performed in Vienna's Theater Anderwien in December 1808. And that first performance went extremely badly. The orchestra was not well rehearsed, and the concert hall was freezing. I assume they didn't have, you know, central heating in 1808. And at one point, Beethoven, who I believe was the conductor, but if he wasn't the conductor, it's even more hilarious, (laughs) uh, stopped the performance midstream and commanded them all to start again. Which, if you were sitting in what I believe was a four-hour performance... Over four hours. Over four hours. That must have been a long night. It's never good when the whole orchestra has to stop and start again. They had rehearsed only once before they... And this was... At this concert, there was a number of premieres of Beethoven's works, and... They premiered the sixth symphony as well as the fifth, but wow. they played the sixth one before they played the fifth. They Voyagered it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Voyager two sent up for Voyager one. Yeah. Um, there was a, there's a there's a fun quote that Murmurs of Earth relays when Goethe first heard this played for him by his friend Felix Mendelssohn. He wasn't that impressed. His quote was, "That caused no emotion. It's only astonishing and grandiose," <laughs> which I wouldn't mind as being the most negative comment about something I do. <laughs> Especially if it's Goethe telling you. Sure. And it is, after World War II, it was often referred to as the Victory Symphony because it's Beethoven's fifth with a V. <laughs> and the Morse code for V is dit, 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 dot, Whoa. which is a coincidence. That's very pleasing, That's though. so cool. Some Beethoven fun facts about his life. Not so fun, let's be honest. He was named after an older sibling who died very young. A fact often repeated to him as he was growing up. Oh. Uh, His father was an out-of-work alcoholic musician, and Beethoven himself suffered chronic dysentery and, most famously, increasing deafness as he grew older. And Uh, probably depression, like... Yes. The last line of my notes, but for all his hardships, he was almost universally regarded as an extremely unpleasant man. (laughs) But he wrote very beautiful music. Other music as well. We don't only have to stick with the symphonies to find beauty in Beethoven. Certainly the second piece we get to towards the end of our run here is not from a symphony. Ah, good. So we didn't ask you this earlier about the Bach. Oh, yeah. The the hottest segment in podcasting. Um, (laughs) Hannah wakes up on a UFO and hears some Bach and Beethoven playing. Which would you rather hear? Since since we're doing both pieces at once, which would you rather hear waking up on the UFO? Oh. 
Well, I love the Beethoven piece so much. Like that's one of my favorite pieces. But so, a bit startling to be woken up to. Yes. A little bit. Um, I think if I had never heard it before, it would be a lot more startling, but because I am very familiar with it and like it a lot. But the Bach is a very calming piece. I think that would be a nice thing to hear on a spaceship because it's just soothing, relaxing, calming you. So that would be nice. But the the Beethoven piece, though, I feel like that's where it belongs, is in the corridors of an alien ship. I feel like that's what Beethoven wrote it for. Like, if you just listen to it and you just imagine yourself... You just imagine it echoing through the quarters. I think that's where it's supposed to be. Wow. Uh, that, yeah. That's, that, yeah. Yeah, that's a take. <laughs> See, I would have... <laughs> I would have I would have gone the other way. Like, the Bach... And this is coming from a Bach fan, folks. I think that if you woke up on an alien spaceship and listened to the Bach, especially the Glenn Gould performance, you might say, huh, sounds like a computer spewing out music. <laughs> Whereas the Beethoven, you'd be definitely... Oh, yeah. Oh, somebody alive is performing this. Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.